0: I'm pleased to introduce tonight's speaker, Alan Riding. Alan Riding is a writer for the New York Times. He served for 12 years as a European cultural correspondent for the paper. He has also served as the Times bureau chief in Paris, Madrid, Rio de Janeiro, and Mexico City. Riding is the author of the incredibly brilliant Distant Neighbors, A Portrait of the Mexicans, and most recently of And the Show Went On, Cultural Life in Nazi-Occupied Paris. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Alan Riding.
1: You know, one goes on these book tours, really, one's sent on these book tours occasionally by the publishers for the singular purpose of selling books. But Gregory and the Sokolow Public Square decided they'd sort of ambush me by coming up with a rather broader title of my conversation, Do Artists Have a Moral Responsibility in War? Uh, It's fair enough, because it does, in a sense, come to the heart of what I was writing about. I was tempted to start by talking not of the Second World War, which is, of course, the period covered in my book, but of more recent wars, for example, the Iraq War or the Afghan War, and to ask, did we hear from American or British artists and writers on the morality of our involvement in those conflicts? The answer, of course, is barely. Now, being in Los Angeles, I suppose artists uh, include Hollywood movie stars, why not? And in fairness, a handful of them have taken positions on these wars. And on the other hand, if someone other than a politician or a general is going to speak out on such issues, he or she needs to have someone listening in the media and the public at large. And of course, that's the other side of the coin. Americans and Britons are not used to looking to artists and writers to provide moral leadership on important political questions. We may be happy to see Angelina Jolie or Bono or George Clooney drawing attention to food needs or human rights abuses in distant lands of Africa. But are we ready to heed them or any others on, say, health reform in the United States or massive budget cuts in the UK or indeed wars? Well, apparently not. So behind the question that I've been asked to answer, do artists have a moral responsibility in war? There's another no less crucial but perhaps hidden question. Are we willing to give artists moral authority on questions of war? And I suspect in the pragmatic cultures of the United States and Britain, the answer all too often is, why should we? What do they know that politicians don't know? Now let's turn our eyes to other parts of the world and see what happens there. And the answer is, artists and writers, as well as intellectuals like historians or sociologists or anthropologists, not only speak out, but also have audiences. When this matters, of course, is also more than just during wars, as the title of my remark suggests. These voices are heard and are necessary during times of political stress and strife. Certainly during wars, particularly an unpopular war, but also during a foreign occupation, which is the case I address in my book, equally during oppressive dictatorships, which are given to jailing, torturing, disappearing, or simply murdering their opponents. Perhaps also in civil wars, which we know from the United States 150 years ago, from Spain in the 30s, from Bosnia and Rwanda in the 90s, from Sri Lanka, Darfur, and Congo, even more recently, We know that civil wars can be brutal in the extreme. In other words, in times of moral breakdown, there's evidently a need for moral guidance. And let's face it, this is unlikely to be provided by politicians with specific interests to defend. Before moving to Paris in 1989, I spent two decades in Latin America. And those two were immensely difficult years for the region. For 13 years, I lived in Mexico, a country which since 1929 had been ruled by a single party, although at least since 1940, all the presidents had been civilians. From Mexico, I covered the troubles in Central America and the Caribbean. Later I covered much of South America from a base in Brazil. And during much of this time, most of Latin America was under right-wing military rule, or in the case of Cuba, under a communist dictatorship. And in these dramas, artists, and particularly writers, played an important role in reminding the world of what was happening there. What gave them this influence, of course, was the fact that they had enjoyed considerable social and even political stature before things turned sour. The roots of this tradition are not that different from those to be found in much of Europe. Monarchy, centralized power, the Catholic Church, and elitist court life, In the past, the writer or artist often depended on the goodwill of the king or the viceroy or the president or perhaps the cardinal. Think of Velázquez or Rubens or Monteverdi or Mozart. And even today, he often stands close to power, for it or against it, but close to it. In Latin America, the Venezuelan writer Romulo Gallegos even became president of his country in 1948 although he didn't last more than a few months, in fact. Such are the risks of writers going into politics. The fact is that it was important for presidents to be liked by artists, and that continues in some way today. And one way of winning such approval has been to send them off to comfortable diplomatic posts. Just off the top of my head, (coughs) those who ended up in Paris in the second half of the 20th century included the Cuban Alejo Carpentier, the Guatemalan Miguel Ángel Asturias, the Brazilian Vinicius de Moraes, the Chilean Pablo Neruda, and also Jorge Edwards, the Mexican Carlos Fuentes, all with diplomatic posts in, in Paris, obviously before the military regimes. And Octavio Paz, another Nobel laureate, was Mexico's ambassador to India until he resigned to protest the massacre of students in Mexico City in 1968. These are just some of the more famous names, but when things turned nasty as they began to do so with the military coup in Brazil in 1964, artists and writers who are well known in their own countries but perhaps less known around the world, invariably had to face stern choices about how they would respond. The problem was partly that as military coups rolled across Latin America, initially at least, they were not necessarily unpopular. Usually they occurred with considerable business and middle class support. Occasionally, as in Guatemala in 1954, Brazil in 1964, and Chile in 1973, all coups aided by the United States, because the incumbent regimes were thought to be leftist and radical. And at other times, one of the reasons for the coups with the governments in office was simply incompetent. In other words, in some cases, it took a while for things to polarize, for opposition to the military to build up for armed guerrilla groups to appear, for jailings, torture, and killings to multiply. At that point, artists and writers were expected to speak out. And if there was censorship, this was not possible. So what were they meant to do in order to live up to what they considered their responsibility, to act as witnesses to mounting horror? In practice, these were the choices. They could stay in their country and endorse the military regime which very few did. They could stay and remain silent, which sometimes they had to because they didn't have the money to leave the country or they had family commitments. They could join a clandestine resistance group and literally take up arms. Some did that, often middle-class students and frequently journalists. They could leave the country and campaign against the regime from abroad, and that's what many of the best-known names did or they could leave and simply start new lives abroad. Exile was not always a choice they had. Some regimes threw their critics out. Others gave them 24 or 48 hours to leave or face assassination. That was one of Guatemala's specialities, and it occurred to several friends of mine, some who did not take the warning and who were absolutely, with clockwork, uh, assassinated. But in general, I'd say that Latin American artists and writers responded with dignity and courage to the threats they faced, even even if many did, indeed, have to go abroad. Some of the names you may know, like the Brazilian musicians Caetano Veloso and Gilberto Gil, they ended up in London, or the Chilean playwright Ariel Dorfman, who was in the United States, and the Chilean novelist Isabel Allende, the niece of of the ousted president of Chile, And she initially went to live in Venezuela. One seeming contradiction was that Mexico, where I lived at the time, it received thousands of educated and intellectual exiles at the same time as controlling its own opposition. Then there was Cuba. With no space for internal dissidents, that is until very very recently when some dissidents had begun to speak out and then promptly be sent to jail, uh, writers like Cabrera Infante, Alberto Padilla, Reinaldo Arenas all had to leave the country. But Cuba was interesting and complicating because it posed Latin American intellectuals with an interesting dilemma, something that was somewhat echoed in the 30s in Paris. Initially, they all cheered the overthrow of the Batista dictatorship in 1959, and they bemoaned the later American embargo of Cuba as an act of imperialism. But as Castro became more and more of a dictator himself, Latin American writers found themselves in a tricky spot. If they criticized Cuba, they would be playing into the hands of the United States, which at the same time was installing and supporting right-wing military dictatorships across Latin America. But if they said nothing, they were morally inconsistent. Cuba, in turn, raised the stakes. You're either with us or against us. By the early 70s, Several leading writers, Carlos Fuentes, Mario Vargas Llosa, and Octavio Paz, among them, had broken with Cuba over its political oppression, and were immediately called extreme rightists by the left. A few others, prominently Gabriel García Márquez, remained loyal to Cuba. García Márquez said he had more influence as a friend than as a foe. Who knows if he did? Anyway, this is a very long introduction to the topic of my book, and it explains, I hope, why I've long been interested in the political and moral positions and influence of artists and writers. In fact, I should mention other parts of the world where artists have dared to confront totalitarian power, certainly in Europe, with perhaps Britain something of an exception, probably because it hasn't had a decent dictator since Oliver Cromwell, (laughs) unless you include Margaret Thatcher but definitely including the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, we remember Solzhenitsyn and Havel, and Africa, obviously during the difficult years of apartheid in South Africa, people like the brave Nadine Gordimer raising her voice, and now China, where the Nobel Peace Laureate Liu Xiaobu, a literary critic and intellectual, is stuck in jail as we, as we speak tonight. So finally we reach the German occupation of France from 1940 to 1944. How French artists, writers, and intellectuals responded to it is perhaps no more than a footnote to the Second World War. But it also illustrates how men and women in general respond to all kinds of acute danger or extreme threat. This in turn led me to the inevitable question, a question that I had often posed in Latin America where I did at least enjoy the protection of my accreditation and my association with the New York Times. When I looked at the occupation, the question I asked, what would I have done? Would I have been a hero or a coward? Or like so many French, would I have simply kept my mouth, my head down, my mouth shut, and waited for better times? The fact that I have no answer to that tempered my judgments in writing this book. So, also, did a remark made several years after the war by Anthony Eden, Britain's foreign secretary. He said, If one hasn't been through the horrors of an occupation by a foreign power, you have no right to pronounce upon what a country does which has been through all that. And those who have not had the horrors and known the horrors of an occupation by a foreign power include the United States and Britain. Why this period? For me, the occupation stands out partly because of what preceded it, that is, the interwar years when Paris was a cultural capital unlike any that Europe has known probably since the Renaissance, the greatest concentration of artistic talent perhaps since 15th century Florence. But Paris was not only an international center, indeed often a safe haven for artists and writers from France and from much of Europe and even the United States, many of them hanging out at Gertrude Stein's apartment on the Rue de Fleurus. It was also an arena where creators and thinkers were engaged in wars of words that in a way anticipated the bloody conflict that followed. I imagine Paris in the 30s as a kind of colosseum in which ideas and ideologies confronted each other before the lions were let loose. What never ceased to surprise me during my research was how intensely artists, writers, and intellectuals disdained the France of the day, that is, the Third Republic. It was a parliamentary democracy, but one in which the principal objective of the political class was to serve itself, perhaps an indeed a thought on the eve of t- tomorrow's elections. <laughs> New governments were constantly being formed with different permutations of the same people. Between 1918 and 1940, there were no fewer than 34 governments in France. So French democracy was messy, corrupt, unstable, unrepresentative. Remember women didn't get the vote until after the liberation in late 1944. What was better? Well. From the 1920s, Mussolini's fascist regime found legions of admirers in France. Hey, the trains ran on time. From the early 30s, Salazar's ultra-Catholic anti-communism in Portugal was an appealing model for other rightists. Then came Hitler in 1933. Order, efficiency, nationalism, pride, economic growth, everything the Third Republic lacked, plus, of course, extraordinary rearmament, the meaning of which most French failed to comprehend. In contrast for those on the left, the Soviet Union offered the mirage of a worker's paradise which promised to defeat the hydra-headed monster on the far right. Talking to people who were students in the mid and late 1930s, and for my book I managed to find Uh, shall we say, survivors of that period, because they are almost all of them in their 90s now, I was struck by how often they told me that the choice was fascism or communism. Not only in terms of which student group or gang they joined, because the Latin Quarter was constantly a battlefield for students of left and right, but also in terms of what utopia they embraced. And this is where artists, writers, and leading academics came in. For the most part, they too had given up on the Third Republic and were drawn by the intellectual neatness of these competing ideologies. Only when the Spanish Civil War erupted did they come to understand that the battle of ideas could also mean death and destruction. This reality came to France in just six weeks in the spring of 1940, some 100,000 dead, close to two million prisoners of war, and the destruction of French pride, honor, dignity. But if one hoped that a legion of artists and writers would now step forward to save France, forget it. No sooner had the uh, dust settled than a small bevy of fascist journalists and writers appeared to celebrate France's defeat as the ultimate proof that something was rotten in the state of France. For them, in fact, it was a victory because the true enemies of France, Jews, Communists, Freemasons, Britons, had been defeated. In the battle that really mattered, that of ideology over nationalism, the extreme right had won. These writers, people like Robert Brasillac, Pierre Drieux-La Rochelle, Lucien Robaté, and the famous and infamous Céline, although he's always difficult to categorize, These and other writers and rightists were not really collaborators. They were true believers. At the other other extreme were other believers, the communists, who had obviously been defeated too, except for the bizarre twist that at least during the first year of the occupation, Hitler and Stalin were allies. Only after the German invasion of the Soviet Union in June 1941 were French communists at last free to act. And they did. Whether among intellectuals or workers, it was the communists who took the lead in the resistance. And what about the rest? Their choices were much like those faced by my Latino friends 30 years later. Jewish artists and writers knew they were unwelcome, and most fled Paris. Some, like the composer Darius Milhaud and the novelist André Maurois, quickly chose exile. Many others fled to the so-called unoccupied zone, the two-fifths of France, mainly in the southeast, under the control of Marshal Pétain's collaborationist regime in Vichy. Many of them, not just French Jews, but also German and Austrian, also managed to flee the country, sometimes over the Pyrenees, thanks in good measure to the organization led by that genuine American hero, Varian Fry. Others survived the occupation, hiding in the South. A few changed their names and carried on working. And of course, some were shot for resistance activities. Others were arrested and deported to death camps, like the unfortunate Irene Nemirovsky, who for so many of us has brought that period to life with her extraordinary book, Suite Francaise. Then there were the many artists and writers who either did not want to or could not leave the country. What were their options? I think it's hard for us to understand what it felt like for the French in 1940 to wake up to the immensity of their defeat. After years of propaganda about the military invincibility, in the blink of an eye, they faced humiliation, despair, vulnerability, helplessness. So when Marshal Pétain stepped forward, actually when he stepped out of France's own history as the hero of Verdun, more than twenty years earlier. When Pétain promised to shield the French from the worst and lead them back to the best, for most of them he was not a collaborator, he was the only game in town. And even respected figures like André Gide and François Mauriac, both winners of the Nobel Literature Prize after the war, as well as much of the Catholic Church, they were all willing to believe Pétain. The problem was that Pétain was not that Pétain blamed Jews and Communists and Freemasons for France's debacle. He was bound to do that because he could hardly blame the incompetence of his own French army. The problem was that he did not deliver. He could not stand up to the occupier. He kept making concessions and got nothing in return. 1942 was the worst year. While there was still no sign of an Allied victory, popular faith in Vichy had evaporated. Nazi repression was on the rise, and growing numbers of French were genuinely disgusted to see their own police rounding up Jews for deportation. Perhaps for these very same reasons, 1942 was also when the cultural and intellectual resistance began to take shape. There had been a few individual initiatives before then, like that of a music publisher who printed his own resistance sheet with the heroically Rabelaisian name of Pantagruel until he was arrested, deported, and decapitated. There was also the network of the Musée de l'Homme, the Museum of Mankind, where a bunch of valiant ethnographers who'd played no political role in the 30s put out a one-page newspaper called Resistance until they too were rounded up and variously executed and deported. But despite these setbacks, the need to do something forged alliances of communist and non-communist artists and writers who also began to put out modest, clandestine newspapers. The most successful, perhaps predictably, was that of the writers. They formed a national writers' committee which began publishing a clandestine monthly called Les Lettres Francaises. And they later backed an underground publishing venture called Édition de Minuit, Midnight Publishing. It was a Appropriate name, which put out novellas, essays, and poetry collections under assorted pseudonyms. And the musicians, the movie world, artists also all had their own resistance sheets. The problem was, realistically speaking, how many people could they reach with these publications? The answer was very few. And they were up against the giant machine of Nazi propaganda which included dozens of newspapers and magazines, as well as the German-run Radio Paris. They were also up against the city's very active and popular cultural life. When I say in the title of my book, and the show went on, it really did. The Germans, starting with Goebbels himself, wanted to demonstrate to Parisians that the occupation was really no big deal, that life was largely normal, that there was plenty of distraction, Movies, opera, music hall, cabaret, theater, art exhibitions, new books, you name it. And Parisians embraced this with enthusiasm. Not that they could forget the occupation, particularly as food shortages and repression grew, but who didn't enjoy some escapism? And it wasn't just the Parisian public that was happy with the booming cultural life. Vichy, too, saw it as a way of keeping up French spirits and even of showing that, at least culturally, France had not been defeated. Add to to that the fact that both performers and creators needed to work to make ends meet. An actor wanted to act, a dancer to dance, a violinist looked for an orchestra where he could play, and so on, and for the most part, the act of doing what they knew how to do was not regarded as a political statement or indeed as collaboration even if they were applauded by Germans. It was merely a way of staying alive. So if we start with the premise that artists wanted to work and the public also wanted them to work. Where should the lines be drawn? Well, as I said, the, the bad guys, the really bad guys, were for the most part, mea culpa, journalists, who constantly poured venom and vitriol on Jews and communists, as well as on artists of dubious loyalty to the Reich. Some of these were hack columnists, but they were also the admired writers who I'd mentioned earlier, Brasilac, Drieux, Robaté, who enjoyed enjoyed far more respect than normal journalists do. Thus, Brasilac's paper, Je suis partout, was actually far from stupid. It was well written. It just also happened to be vicious. Then there was Céline, who completed his trilogy of anti-Semitic diatribes during the occupation and never missed a chance to write anti-Semitic letters the collaborationist newspapers. But back to the blurry lines, and they did exist. In hindsight, it seems it was acceptable to perform with Germans in the audience as long as it was not exclusively a German event. And of course, whether at the opera or music hall or cabaret, it was almost impossible not to perform before Germans. It was a different matter to be seen socializing with the Nazis. And among those who later found themselves in most trouble were those who accepted invitations to visit the Reich. Goebbels was very keen to show back home that he'd more or less tamed French artists and writers, and his propaganda machine was pretty successful in doing so. The first to go were a number of well-known composers and musicians, including Arthur Honegger, the most successful and popular composer of the day, who were invited to Vienna to attend events marking the 150th anniversary of Mozart's death. When they got there, they were received by none other than Richard Strauss. Vlaminck, Van Dongen, Dorin, and other visual artists were on another delegation that toured Germany. Daniel Darieux, France's most popular film star, led a group of movie stars on a glitzy trip to Berlin. Then there were the writers In successive years, they attended a European writers' conference, actually a conference of of writers in occupied Europe, in Weimar. And there were again people like Brasillac and Drieu, Abel Bonnard and several others who were big names in that day and today are largely forgotten. Again, it wouldn't be entirely accurate to say that all these cultural travelers were Nazi sympathizers, though some were clearly impressed and admitted it by what they saw in Berlin. Others lamented going later, saying they'd been duped into thinking that or believing that French prisoners of war would be released in exchange for their gesture. But they all had to live with the inevitable photographs, which, some of which appear in my book, taken of them alongside Nazi officers when they left or returned to Paris or in Germany itself where, not infrequently, Goebbels himself hosted a gala dinner in their honor. Perhaps a little bit more unfairly, several French singers were also criticized for going to Germany to sing for French prisoners of war, among them chartrenet Edith Piaf, and Maurice Chevalier. There were two other immensely talented French artists whose, ima- whose images emerged bruised from the occupation as much because of their vanity than anything else. Sacha, Sacha Guitry, playwright, actor, director, whose plays are enjoying a great revival in France today, worked nonstop throughout the occupation, even finding time to make a film and write a book in praise of Pétain. But his sin was that he was frequently seen in public, or at least in Maxime's, in the company of senior Nazi officers or politicians. In other words, if someone as respected as Guitry thought it was okay to socialize with the enemy, Then what sort of example was he offering to his admirers? The other personality of matching talent and vanity was Jean Cocteau, playwright, director, artist, celebrity. Cocteau had long been a controversial figure, viewed by the writers as the quintessence of Third Republic decadence, not least because he was openly gay and by the time of the occupation was living with the gorgeous Jean Marais. But while he was frequently attacked by the collaborationist press, Cocteau also had good relations with several Francophile and Francophone German officials. And he'd attend parties at the German Embassy and German Institute. His greatest public mistake was to write a poem to Arno Brecker, Hitler's favorite sculptor, on the occasion of Brecker's mega exhibition at the Orangerie in 1942. And of course, he was at the show's opening, along with numerous other Nazi sympathizers, and others have to be in the photo, artists like Guitry and Serge Lifar, the choreographer who is the ballet director at the Paris Opera. Again, I wouldn't call these characters evil in the sense that they spouted Nazi propaganda or denounced Jews or resistance figures. They were basically opportunists, drawn to what was powerful, to who was powerful, and who could promote their work. Most of them, in fact, also used their German contacts to help others in trouble. Guitry and the actress Arleti, for example, succeeded in obtaining the freedom of the Jewish playwright Tristan Bernal. And Guitry and Cocteau also tried in vain to save the life of the poet Max Jacob after he was arrested and sent to Drancy, where he eventually died of natural causes. But again, because they were very public figures, they were not exactly upstanding role models. Arletti, for example, would do the rounds of night spots on the arm of her handsome Luftwaffe lover. And what about the greatest artist of them all, Picasso? Well, as his former mistress Françoise Gillot told me, you could hardly expect him to grab a machine gun and start mowing down the Germans. He could also hardly refuse entry to Nazi officers who arrived at his studio door. You may have heard the probably apocryphal story of some visiting Nazis seeing sketches of Guernica, by then safely deposited at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and they're asking, did you do this? And Picasso answering, no, you did. But the truth is that Picasso could have left the country. He was offered exile in the United States and Mexico, and he didn't. Instead, he kept a low profile, avoided the company of Germans and collaborators and kept on working. In fact, I would argue that the very fact he stayed in Paris was an act of defiance, not least because Franco would have loved to have had his head. It was an act of courage that other artists and writers could not ignore. For me, quite the most interesting case study involved writers, those who were neither fascist nor Vichy sympathizers, soon faced the choice of publishing or not publishing. And this choice was addressed very quickly because almost immediately the publishing industry was back in business. Publishing is another example of where the argument that French culture must stay alive coincided with the need to continue doing business. But there was a price to pay. In exchange for a return to so called normality, the publishing industry agreed to surrender all anti Nazi books or, ju- or books by Jewish authors, tens and tens of thousands were burned, and in future to, supply, to apply self censorship to new books to ensure that nothing offensive to the occupier appeared in print. Edition Gallimard, probably the best known French publisher, went further, handing over the reins of its most. Uh, influential literary journal, the Nouvelle Revue Française, to a famous fascist in exchange for the green light to reopen its left bank offices. For anti-German writers, then, the question was, should they publish? Actually, I suspect some never asked themselves that question and carried on writing with a view to publication. But it was nonetheless a question that was in the air. One who refused to publish, and who strongly disapproved of those who did, was the essayist Jean Guilheneau. And in his private journal, which was, of course, only published after the war, he expressed his views in a very lucid manner. The species of the man of letters is not one of the greatest of human species. Incapable of surviving for long in hiding, he would sell his soul to see his name in print. He can stand it no longer. He quarrels only about his importance, the size of the print in which his name appears, its ranking in the table of contents. It goes without saying that he's full of good reasons. French literature must continue. And he believes that he is French literature and thought, and that they will die without him. In Southeast France, the poet René Char reached a similar conclusion. In a letter to a friend, he explained, my reasons, that is for not publishing, are dictated to me partly by the rather unbelievable and detestable exhibitionism that too many intellectuals have shown since June 1940. Char was among the few writers who then took up arms, organizing a powerful resistance maquis that proved helpful to the Allies after the landings along the Riviera in August 1944. But in general, again, once once again, the lines were often blurred. The poet Robert Desnos worked for for a collaborationist newspaper and used it as a cover for resistance activity, which led to his arrest, deportation, and eventual death of typhus in a death camp. Among leading members of the resistance National Writers' Committee, there were many who also published books accepting the rules imposed by the occupier, and these weren't any writers. These were Albert Camus, Louis Aragon, Paul Eloir, Jean-Paul Sartre, Simon de Beauvoir. True, their books were not, strictly speaking, political. They even had in Gerhard Heller, the German censor, A man who admired French literature and then was able to spend much of the rest of his life boasting that he got extra paper for the publication of Camus' L'Etranger. But during the occupation, ordinary writers who saw the names of respected, uh, ordinary Parisians who saw the names of respected writers on new books might be forgiven for thinking it was perfectly okay to continue publishing under the Nazis. There's perhaps one last thing worth emphasizing. The occupation was not like a still photograph. It was a constantly moving image in which people, artists and writers among them, changed positions as the war advanced. Was that wrong? Wasn't it Lord Keynes who said, when the facts change, my opinion changes? Actually, perhaps the only ones who never wavered were the true fascists, who if anything became more fascist, once they perceived a German defeat as likely to bring communism to France. But for the most part, it was understandable for writers and artists to feel one thing in 1941, when Hitler reigned supreme on continental Europe, Britain was barely hanging on and the US had not entered the war. And another thing in 1943, when Allied troops had taken North Africa and the Soviets had driven back the Wehrmacht at Stalingrad. So yes, in spirit, if not also in action, intellectual resistance became increasingly commonplace as an allied victory grew more probable. Then after the liberation of France, time again played a role. And this is my final observation. The artists and writers who had struggled to make themselves heard through small clandestine newspapers during the occupation were suddenly in charge of the purge committees recommending punishment for those who, four years earlier, had been on the winning side. There was one oddity. Artists and writers were punished precisely because they were deemed to have special responsibility. At the same time, even some former resistance leaders thought it was unfair that, say writers should be jailed or shot for their opinions when industrialists, who had profited enormously from the occupation, were let free. But perhaps the moral failure of the writers was greater. After all, do we expect industrialists to personify morality? Anyway, once General de Gaulle had established the official myth that France as a whole was resistant and only a handful of bad French were collaborators, the urge to purge began to to wane. Yes, the La Rochelle committed suicide and Brasilac was among a handful of writers and journalists who were shot. But in general, the longer that collaborators avoided arrest and trial, the more likely they were to get off lightly. And of course, Céline is the prime example. He returned to France from exile in Denmark in 1951 as a free man. So in the end, the idea of the public intellectual, of the artist or writer who claims the moral high ground as he surveys and opines about the world this figure somehow survived the occupation indeed as we've noted he and occasionally she lived on in many countries yet there's something very french about this phenomenon could it be that could it be because french intellectuals in fact the entire french educational system are hypnotized by ideas and theories And for this reason, they have long adopted the lexicon of isms, monarchism, surrealism, anti-Semitism, fascism, communism, existentialism, even Maoism. After all, these isms offer answers to all problems. But alas, only in theory. But here, at least, things have changed. Long after Sartre died, even after the Cold War ended, there are still French intellectuals ready to step into the fray on issues great and small. But the good thing is that they are no longer selling utopias. And for that reason, I think they do and can contribute to the public debate. They can raise moral issues. They can force politicians to face uncomfortable truths. And they don't speak in sound bites. Of course, in the end, the question is, is anyone out there listening? Thank you.
0: A person who is not in an occupied country cannot judge the other people in that locality. But what about the artists decades after the fact? It's been 65 years or more since the end of the Vichy government. Where are the French artists and writers, who are, or playwrights, or filmmakers, who are discussing the shame of Pétain and the collaborationists? My understanding is the American playwright Arthur Miller was the man who wrote the play *Incident at Vichy* that it's considered bad form or bad taste to rip open the scab of that at that at, at this point?
1: Well, it's true that um, in in nonfiction, or rather in, in fiction, um, plays or novels, there has not been a lot of investigation or or examination. But in nonfiction and academic work, there has been, and and in movies, of course, there has been a lot. And and increasingly so. I mean, so much so that I think, (coughs) as a journalist who just sort of dives into a subject, um, I benefited enormously from the amount of work done by historians on this in this whole area. And in terms of the public awareness, I think principally through films, obviously starting with the sorrow and the pity um, 40 years ago. But even to this day, you will frequently see uh, programs of uh, films on television about you know Pétain, about Laval, about you know the death of uh, Mat Jacob one quite recently, and there was a, f- a feature film which was very well received and got an enormous publicity about six months ago, uh, called uh, La Hafle" about the big uh, the first big roundup of Jews in Paris in July 1942, and um, and it was striking. I mean, it, but, but I suppose the very fact it was striking how much attention was given to it. Um, it somewhat underlies your point. I mean it's always a question of trying to measure how much the French are still covering up. Quite <clears throat> I found in the people I spoke to, everyone was pretty open. But at the same time I found when I spoke to friends of mine who were maybe my age or a little bit younger and said what I was writing about, they would still roll their eyes and say, "Oh, no one's going to want to talk to you about that." You know, we never talked about those things at home after the war and so on. So there is clearly uh, uh, the debate, shall we say, continues. But, but again, this year, because it's the 70th anniversary of the fall of Paris and the, and the rise of Vichy and all that stuff, there has been a lot, uh, a lot in the in the magazines in Le Monde. It had you know two weeks of long essays. So. It's, it's, it remains a sensitive subject. How could it not be? I mean, it, you know, it was. Uh, it's hard to think of anything, any parallel in, in, in the United States. I mean, obviously, everything's of of, of 9/11, perhaps, but um, it's it's, not, it's certainly not on the scale of what it meant for France. Is the
0: examination strictly those who were given the choice of staying, and paying a high price, and uh, those who fled, and didn't speak? or create, because I think of an artist in the 30s, Henry Miller, who came up with a combination of fleeing and contributing to the artistic world when he decided to go to Greece uh, fleeing Paris and then examined the world at war and created what I think is one of the greatest pieces of art of the 20th century in the Colossus of Marusi. So I wonder if the artistic world or the intellectual world has examined artists who could contribute uh, outside of geographic boundaries.
1: Very frequently people had to do it from abroad. In that sense, it, 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 you're, you're right. Uh, at, at the same time, it's interesting in France, you know, a, a lot of the surrealists left. In fact, they were able to leave through the, the assistance of Aaron Fry in Marseille. Uh, and in general, they, they, like Breton and all his group, uh, they did not play a very active role. They were in the United States, in New York, and they continued to meet a surrealist Several of them never bothered to learn English, and uh, occasionally they would broadcast on the radio, but they didn't take a prominent role. And often what happens when there's there's a period of a dictatorship or an occupation and some people leave and then it ends, there's a lot of tension and resentment between those who left and those who stayed. Um, Those who left obviously in a free position to criticize. Uh, It was was quite interesting, the the question of poetry, because poetry was... um, one of the most useful instruments, shall we say, of, of intellectual or, or literary resistance, because it was short, you could remember it, you could leave, you could copy it, leave it in a, in a cafe. I mean, that happened quite a lot. Uh, and you had you know, great poets like Eluard and Aragon, but many, and Desnos, but many others who were, who were writing very powerful political poetry. After the war, some of those outside. Um, in fact, one of the publications was uh, 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 put out by this the, the clandestine publishing company. The Minuit, was called um, the Honor of Poets, and afterwards, one of the poets who was living outside—in fact, he was living in Mexico—he wrote a book called a short book called The Dishonor of Poets, and his criticism was, "You wrote dreadful poetry." That, that political poetry was not poetry. You should not have lowered yourself to that point. So, I mean, it was rather easy, but in fact, you know, some of that simple, you know, drum-beating poetry actually kept people's spirits alive. So,
0: uh, Hi, my name is Omero, and I want to thank you for your talk. I, it was really illuminating. I have a question that I'm trying to sort out in my mind, which is the there's this almost like division of moral labor between the industrialists and the artists, and it just seems like why why is any human being exempt from this moral obligation to speak out in the face of evil, or, and another way to think about this is why do we think artists in particular have a, a special burden to speak out against evil, you know, and I say that because I'm not an artist myself, you know, but I feel it's everyone's responsibility to speak out, say, against an injustice, and it seems like like in cases of war, even in the United States, it always seems like this seems to fall on artists, and I'm wondering if you can shed any light on historical reasons why it seems to fall on artists, or why people look to artists you know, for moral guidance when it should fall on all of us, especially if we believe we live in a democracy.
1: I mean, it's a very valid question. Um, I think probably in another era, people might have looked uh, to artists and writers in particular, because they were considered to have some sort of degree of genius, some sort of uh, spiritual calling, something mystical that we didn't have, um, or, or, or a great artist. Because he had that gift, he somehow maybe was in connect, <laughs> connected to, to forces beyond our, our natural understanding. I mean, I know it's sort of vague to say that, but nonetheless, you know, if you're in front of a great artist, you think, my goodness, you know, he, he has he, he has a gift. He's, he's different from ours. And, um, so in that sense, there'll be a sort of aura, almost a slightly sacred aura around, I think, an, an artist historically. I think today it, it tends to be more a function of just the, uh, 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 the celeb. I mean, we are so uh, devoted to the cult of celebrity in, in, in so many countries that um, somebody who's been on TV or, or, or sung a song is, meant to, you know, is considered, has a space and Which he may or may not fill um, responsibly. Um, I mean, I because I was frequently told, you know, you don't you don't want to write books like this. You know, the only books that sell are celeb books, and so I thought, no, but my book's a celeb book. You know, it's got. Camus, he's got (laughs) Chevalier, and it has got Jean-Paul Sartre, and they're all celebs too. And of course, in the sense that is true, because people did look to them because they had a a space in society. I mean, if you look in Latin America today, I mean, someone like um, Vargas Llosa. I was covering Peru at the time when he ran for president in, in, in 1990. I mean, you know, there was, people looked to him. There was, a, there was a sense of a vacuum in society that's lost its way, and he stepped forward and he had an authority to speak. In the end, he lost to Fujimori um, narrowly, but nonetheless, and he, he, I think he was very glad he lost, actually. Um, but although he wrote a very interesting book afterwards. Um, uh, about his experience. In fact, of course, cynics said that the only reason he was running was so he could write a book. <laughs> but I don't think that was entirely fair. I think that he felt um, you know, perhaps there's a degree of megalomania that comes with being a celebrity or, or a great writer or a great artist, I'm sure. And levels of vanity, as I mentioned, uh, are important. But at the same time, I think he did it out of genuine sense of responsibility. But I suppose we all should.
0: <laughs> Speaking of the collaboration that took place, uh, or the persecution of the collaborators after the war. As I recall, the uh, Hollywood entertainment writers like Norman Corwin and people like that, they were heavily uh, brought to task for their uh, uh, supposed collaboration with the communists at that time. And
1: uh, I wondered if that enters into the same, uh, same thought that you uh, had mentioned about over over in France, with the
0: uh, collaborators there being punished. So, it's, it's the old story.
1: I think uh, you roll with the punch, you, whoever's in power, you change your attitude accordingly. I think uh, your talk has been excellent. Thank you so much for coming tonight. Having been a journalist is extraordinary to see, I um, mean, I've been a journalist all my life, Like um, to, to see how journalism bent to this mixture of uh, um, during, the, during the period after 9 11 bent to all of these and, and allowed itself basically to be silenced or blinded by the wave of whether it was mad patriotism, uh, propaganda. Um, you know, if you, if you dare say anything, you're considered betraying America or a traitor. And the press uh, did it. it. It was extraordinary. I mean, starting with the paper that I worked for, um, it was quite remarkable. And so, you know, there, To to find people who stand up um, on on these sort of occasions under an enormous amount of public or political pressure, it's, it's, it's very difficult. Few people do stand up.
0: Can you talk a little bit about Gertrude Stein and how she was able to survive all of those years as a very famous Jew in France?
1: She was a very famous Jew in America. She was a very, very famous American Jew in France, but famous in America. I don't think she was enormously famous, uh, <clears throat> nor indeed, of course, were most of the last generation that we think of, you know, they were not part of the French cultural life at that time. Now, you know, she, she, she obviously, she'd been there for so long and she, she, she was something of a, a monument in every sense. <clears throat> um, <laughs> but um, she, she, um, she and Alice had a, had a place in the country and, and they would always spend the summer there anyway, and so she was, uh, they were they were there when when war was declared in thirty nine and they basically stayed there. Now um, it's true she was very right wing, also, and she thought Petain was wonderful, and she was um, a, a very good friend of hers, who had been um, her translator. I mean, I, you know, if we can't understand Gertrude in English, I can't imagine how the chap managed to translate her. But anyway, and this chap was himself a vicious anti semite, who then became. Um, d- un, uh, na- appointed by Vichy, director of the, of the National Library in Paris, where he then got Jewish books and had them burned. Um, and yet he was actually at the same time protecting. He claimed after the war when he was arrested that he'd gone to, to, to safeguard uh, the Stein's apartment on Rue de Fleurus and, and the artworks um, that they'd left there. They had gone back uh, during the period of the phony war, as it's known, until the invasion. They'd gone back and collected some clothes, and they'd collected, <coughs> they'd taken back uh, a, a Cezanne painting and Picasso's famous painting of Gertrude Stein, which you, I think, is in the moma, I think it's in the MoMA or the Met. I think it's in the MoMA. I'm sure you know that the, this famous story about that painting, but which was that. He brought it in, he was a young man, it was about 1906, and she said, that doesn't look like me, and he said, it will. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, and so that's how we think of today, how we think she looks. In a way, it's a bit like Shakespeare's plays. We think that's what English history was. But anyway, so she, um, for for the earlier part of the war, she was in the unoccupied zone. So she wasn't in in, in direct peril. And then later on, she did have protectors. She had some uh, some French um, collaborators who were protecting her. But they were in a small village. And France was absolutely, to this day, is full of tiny villages and communities. And the Germans weren't everywhere. The Germans had a surprisingly few number of people um, actually based in France until at the beginning they did because they were going to invade Britain and at the end they did because they were waiting to be invaded themselves. But um, but apart from that, you know, so the, it, you know, there weren't Germans constantly going around all the time. I mean, even the case of Nemirovsky, I mean, she lived for two years in this village. She, uh, and her, she was in the occupied zone. Um, she wore a yellow star and, and, and everyone knew her and liked her in the village and it was just um, in fact, the first year of the occupation, the village had had a German contingent there. They lived in the same hotel. Uh, the officers lived in the same hotel as, as uh, Nemirovsky and her husband, uh, Michel Epstein. So there was a sort of strange coexistence going on. And, and when, when Nemirovsky was picked up and, and eventually um, deported, it, it was a very specific uh, a moment when somebody had denounced her and said, look, you know, there's this Jewish woman there and so on, and they'd made enough fuss, and you know, there's some debate as to exactly who did that, but they made enough fuss that, they, that the gendarme got instructions to come and pick her up. So the, the, the case with Gertrude Stein, it's not, it's not totally incomprehensible. It's not that she was waiting to be picked up and she was protected. Things were much more blurred. I'm wondering, to go a little broader, if it isn't too far, are the characteristics Either of a of a, of a national,
0: a religious, an ideological sort, characteristics you see, say in Russia, France, Latin America—that if that isn't too broad—that that are basis for real resistance, for backbone, for courage. Or is it? Or there's no pattern that you can see among human beings to stand up against uh,
1: oppression and war. I hope that isn't too broad a question. I'm curious if you have any comments on on that kind of perspective. Apart from Anthony Eden's remark, which I quoted early on, uh, there was one other thing that that sort of made me feel sober, because I was raised quite a lot of the time in England. um, Actually, I was born in Brazil, but by the time I arrived in England all the gung-ho films were coming out of how England won the war. and you know, and the French were treated with utmost disdain, and so that sort of was in one's head, you know, that the French are cowards and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then a few years ago, I read a book about what happened in the Channel Islands, um, which are British, um, but quite close to France, and they were occupied very early on. And the people in the Channel Islands behaved identically to the people in France, sort of 30 miles away. So it, it made one think that, you know, actually, human beings generally look to survive. Um, if it means getting something extra on the black market, almost everywhere they will. Um, and there will be a few people who stand out for their rottenness and, and very few will stand out for their heroism. Um, but the, the question that, that would be a sort of my general feeling that I, I, you know, I don't see a pattern. in term, But where you, there is a pattern. Um, is in countries where there is a tradition, and it's not a coincidence, that the people who get thrown in jail in in different places are often the the writers. I mean, in Africa, in in Nigeria, and so on, um, people who actually stand out and and take a position will be artists and writers. Um, I often wonder why this isn't the case, and um, and speculation's always dangerous, why it's less the case in England and, and the United States, and I think perhaps it's because of the, the breakdown of the, of the church through the Reformation and the breakdown of the power of the, of the, of the monarchy um, through the, the English Civil War and then obviously in the States through the, the War of Independence where the idea of something too centralized um, where, the, where the, uh, the artistic and intellectual world would always revolve around it, the church and the, and the court. And since those no longer really had the power, there was much more independent, views, but it, it did mean that they didn't carry the same clout. But that's pure, you know, someone more serious should take that on.
0: A lot this evening we've been talking about artists as kind of a monolithic element. And I was wondering from your research, were the expectations and also the repercussions of what people faced and the stances they did or did not take, were there significant differences depending on the type of writers? Was a novelist versus a journalist versus a composer versus a guitarist versus a sculptor? Were, in the, were they expected to take different public stances or be more vocal or less vocal? And did they face different
1: repercussions as a result of what type of artist they were? Except for writers, the writers were inevitably in a very special situation. And I think with the others, with musicians and, and, and painters and dancers, it was very much the company they kept, what sort of a role model they appeared to be. Less, less so much, I mean, the, you know, for example, there'd be. Um, some actors from the Comédie Française, well, if they're just putting on Molière and Corneille, it really doesn't matter. But if then they go and recite poetry at a, at a private dinner attended by senior German officers to show, you know, whatever. So, so that would be going too far. And, and similarly, um, uh, you know, in, in other areas, if you, if you went out of the way and were seen associating, but if it's just the act of performing, per se, generally wouldn't be considered, you know, uh, uh, a major act of collaboration. In the case of writers, the issue was, of course, they would write it down. Um, and in, in the, the journals and newspapers, the leading, the leading journalists, the leading voices who were writing, shall we say, commentary, vicious commentary, were also uh, very much fiction writers themselves. I mean, you have this, the line was also blurred today. Probably, well, you, you'll, you'll find. Uh, um, Occasionally, certainly, again, back to my Latin world, you'll, you know, Vargas Llosa, Carlos Fuentes, they write almost weekly in El País, in Spain, on political and social issues. But at the same time, they're still novelists. So, in the case of the writers, um, it, it was perhaps more difficult to draw draw a line. I mean, Celine, you know, he again, he, he wrote his great his great novels, his, and, and then write, wrote these what he would call these essays or or pamphlets they were actually called, but they were sometimes quite thick of of, of just sort of vile meanderings half the time. So it's a bit difficult to draw that line. Um, but what was clear was they all wrote it down. So when it came to the trials, it was all written down. Um, and, and, and this is why the trials were very simple. I mean, Brasilac's trial, which took place in one day, was perhaps uh, an example of, of sort of rushed or, or the rush to judgment in a way, but at the same time, it was a question of just presenting his what he'd written and put his name to it. And so, um, and of course, those who were then writing clandestinely, and, and people didn't really know. They then, with the liberation, were very eager for everyone to know that they'd written these things, even though no one, very few people had read these clandestine newspapers. They wanted to say, look, Writers n- were not all like these. We did not all disgrace ourselves. In fact, we tried very, very hard, and this is what we wrote. And so they, it became part of their own post-war narrative, in a sense, the glorification of themselves and the notion of the writer. So you had the, the, the bad writer and the good writer, but in both cases, in a sense, reinforcing the importance of the writer. Thank you. Thank you very much.